Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby. I'm Sam Bygrave. This is the first episode of Drinks at Work, so let me tell you a little bit about what I'll be doing here. Each week, I'll talk to someone who's built a rewarding and creative career in the drinks industry. That might be bar owners, bartenders, brand ambassadors, writers, marketers, distillers, entrepreneurs, and educators, any role in the ever-growing drinks industry. I'll ask their advice, try to understand why they do what they do, and talk about what it is to have a meaningful career in drinks today. My first guest is Jason Williams, who has built a unique career in drinks. Not only is he the Singapore-based head of advocacy for Proof & Company and the creative director for its consultancy agency, Proof Creative, He's also the co-owner of Housemaid Hospitality in Sydney, which owns the multi-level Hinchcliffe House and its stunning cocktail bar, Apollonia. But he's also one of the few bartenders, if not the only one, to have both his name and face adorn a bottle of gin. But first, this episode is sponsored by Australian Cocktail Month, which is a great initiative to get people back into the bars taking place this May. One ticket gets you access to exclusive cocktail menus in 144 bars across 12 cities for the entire month of May. You can learn more about Australian Cocktail Month at australiancocktailmonth.com.au and follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Australian Cocktail Month. Now, my chat with Jason Williams. Jason Williams, thanks for joining me and welcome to the Drinks at Work podcast from Boothby. Hey Sam, thanks for having me. Hey, uh, so we're going to talk a bit about the varied and quite unique role that you've built at Proof & Company. We're going to talk a bit about Widges Gin and Hinchcliffe House. But for those who don't know you, can we talk about how you got into this whole life? Uh, because you started off as a bartender, is that right? Yeah, sure. No, well, didn't start out as a bartender. Started off uh, like a lot of people out in our industry, washing dishes and, um, and yeah, working as a kitchen hand and being a bit of a uh, shit kicker, so to speak, in pizza joints and hotels and nightclubs and worked as a bar back for a few years and then worked in restaurants, cafes, and then became a bartender probably maybe five plus years after first getting into the industry in my teenage years. Right. Was that, did you, how did you get into the industry? Was that just something you sort of fell into to get cash or was it part of a plan? No, I mean, I've never really um, planned my career. Um, Like a lot of people in our industry, it just kind of unfolds, but I did want to get into hospitality for sure. My, um, my grandfather and my uncles um, owned pubs or still own pubs um, throughout regional Queensland. So I spent a fair bit of time in and around those on my school holidays. Um, and I, I was just drawn to the hospitality industry. Also in through movies and stuff like that, I kind of took an interest in it. So when, And I also grew up in a, a tourist town in Coolum Beach on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And there was a big Hyatt resort nearby. So in my teenage years, I started working in in food and beverage and um, always knew that I wanted to work in hospitality. Even when I left high school, moved to Brisbane, I studied at a private TAFE, private institution and hotel management, which was a waste of time. Um, (laughs) But um, Why was it a waste of time? uh, I'm not saying like tertiary studies around hospitality and hotel management is a waste of time. That's really, really good. But that particular course was a bit of a rort. Um, I remember... I remember them kind of teaching us in a classroom situation and thinking to myself, um, what, why isn't my trainer taking us into a bar and showing us how to pull beers there instead of um, instead of watching a video about it or, or talking about it? Yeah. So um, I think it serves its purpose. I did. I do remember actually doing work experience in like housekeeping department and banquets and and like engineering in hotels, and that was quite 
interesting and quite beneficial. But um, hospitality is one of those industries where um, on on the job training is just you know disproportionately important compared to like classroom training or theoretical training. So um, it wasn't a complete waste of time, but uh, I learned a lot more in in a month or even maybe a week working in a nightclub. You learn about people, operations, and you learn about everything compared to six months in a classroom. You you got into yeah. cocktail bartending in particular and sort of managed to make a name for yourself in the Australian scene. Uh, can you tell me about some of the bars that you worked at and how that came about? Why did you get interested in that side of the business? Yeah, sure. So I was working at a, a, a famous nightclub in Brisbane called Family, and um, I was you know running around on the floor, picking up glasses and having a great time. And, um, and that's where I... Be- it was aspirational to get into the bar. You know, we all wanted to get into the bar because they were, the bartenders were just rock stars. You know, they were making more tips. They were, uh, you know, talking to girls and they could do whatever they want, really. You know, like they they just kind of like had this presence about them and had a bit of a, a cool aura about them. And uh, we all put them up on a pedestal. So I wanted to do that. And then I took an interest in actual drinks. You know, this was, this was the early early 2000s when stick drinks were huge and so these guys were like making like heaps of caprioscas and using fresh fruit and all these different exotic spirits and liqueurs were coming into Australia and so I was I started to get into it for the social aspect of it but then I really got into the the flavors and working with cocktails and creating experience for guests um so yeah that's where I got my start um in Brisbane and then I moved to Melbourne I was in Melbourne for eight years and um Got a job at um, Ginger, which is a quite a well-known bar for a very long time, working for Deb Pays and Alex Ross. They, um, after multiple attempts of working there, they finally gave me a job and I worked on the worked on the floor for a few months. And then I was there, I think, for three years in total. And um, yeah, I had a great team. That's where I really, I guess someone would say these days, refined my craft, although I, <laughs> I would never say that. But that's where I really... Um, did my serious cocktail bartending, you know, high small bar, but high volume cocktail sales, worked with a really great team. We were really dedicated to cocktails. We had hundred drinks on the menu. Um, you know, great opportunity to work with really talented bartenders. And that's when I got exposed to the brand side of things and competitions and the kind of the cocktail bar scene in Melbourne in, in the early to late two thousands, which was a really great time to be in the bar scene in Melbourne. That's when it was really at its peak and Melbourne was, uh, I guess in a lot of ways, quite far ahead of the other Australian cities, right? Why, why was Ginger such a seminal and important bar as well? I think the inspiration came from um, Toby Ross and Alex Ross when they traveled to London and, and seen the kind of the cocktail scene there take off in the late 90s, early 2000s. The use of fresh ingredients bringing back classic cocktails, really bright, creative, vibrant cocktails and that cocktail experience. And they wanted to bring that to Melbourne and particularly Fitzroy. It just became a beacon of creativity and a beacon of cocktail culture in Australia. It was quite representative, I think, of the Australian bar scene at the time. Hundreds and hundreds of cocktails going out per night, really personable style of Australian hospitality, um, a neighbourhood vibe. It was a very Fitzroy bar and people were just felt really welcome there, but they also knew that they could get a really creative cocktail that had some love and care put into it. Um, Melbourne at the time, I always reminisce about Melbourne at that time because it was a really strong community vibe. There still is in Melbourne, but this idea of um, 
the Melbourne bar scene, which is now a term that gets used in, around the world. Yeah. The laneway bar culture and the small bar culture, cocktail bar culture. And then the talent that was working in those bars was extraordinary. Started with Misty Bar, Gin Palace, yeah. Tony Starr's Kitten Club, Murmur, Black Pearl, Ginger, um, and many, many other great cocktail bars. Golden Monkey was an institution still, still going today. Yep. So there's amazing bartenders that had a real sense of camaraderie and community, and that was mostly healthy. <laughs> and, and everyone was like really pushing hard and going in cocktail competitions and um, really just there was a, an honest and genuine love of, of bartending and cocktail culture and, and supporting each other and all that kind of stuff. And it became... I think we probably coined ourselves as the Melbourne Massive every time we came up to Sydney for Bar Week. And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was good. That was a pretty special time. We might skip forward a few years here, but, I mean, you ended up moving up to, up to Sydney and working with the Keystone Group as a, was it, as a group bars manager there. Yeah, that was my title. I think at the start it was group cocktail manager, but then it evolved into being more of a group bars manager role, yeah. What, what in that kind of multi-venue role, what was the kind of things that you learned the most there? Because you were responsible for a lot of the drink concepts and, and that sort of stuff with their venues. Um, it was a really good experience uh, and it really set me up for the rest of my career in that um, you, have a, you take a bigger picture approach and um, you look for opportunities to have an impact across uh, multiple teams and larger scale operations um, so, uh, you know, we implemented a, a really great training program, for example, um, and we had hundreds and hundreds of bartenders going through training every week. We had a core group of bartenders that were doing some more experiential training, like beekeeping or going out to farms or making their own products and then doing all that kind of stuff. Um, working in a single bar, you don't have the opportunity to have that impact across a larger group of bartenders or, or venues. Yeah. Um, and also I learned to work with different departments to get great outcomes. So we had a, a marketing team, an operations team. Um, obviously the individual venue has their own GMs and operations managers. So um, was, there a, was there much sort of politics involved in that sort of thing? Because you're working across different departments. Everyone wants to achieve their own different things. I think in a, a group situation where you have a centralized uh, head head office that provides management services out to individual venues, whether that's in a global hotel company or whether it's in a medium-sized company like Keystone, there's always going to be some kind of healthy friction or creative friction or even just some kind of issues between the venue and head office. Sure. That's normal, yeah. particularly when there's mandates that have been sent out, like you have to pour this product or you have to make the drink a certain way or um, you have to hit these certain financial metrics. So yeah, there's compliance things that are always an issue. And I deal a lot with five-star hotels now and they have the same issues. Yeah. Head office or the corporate or the management company will tell the venue that they need to start pouring product X and they need to sell it for X price. But then the, the manager has their own agenda and has their own you know, goals and objectives. And so there's always this little friction there. And I, I, um, I kind of bridge that gap I just try to show value and add value to their business by um, enhancing their beverage offering and, and providing 
training for their staff and maybe and sometimes even providing staff. So the best way to um, get past any friction is to just add value. And then you've always got the opportunity to ask for something in return. So, you know, for one of our venues, I'd go in there and give them and provide them a, a great cocktail list that might increase their sales or get them some good PR and do some training with the staff and get them excited. Uh, that builds that trust and that relationship. And then, and then, off the back of that, I might have to say, and you also have to pull this Diageo product. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Big learning curve. I'm, I'm generally pretty adaptable, but it definitely um, working across really diverse group of venues with a diverse group of people and coming coming kind of top down from a corporate level. Yeah. Um, I, learned, I learned to kind of work on my relationships and just try to add value all the time. Yeah, because as you said, that did sort of set you up for your next role, which was moving to Singapore from Sydney uh, to start work at Proof & Company. Uh, you t- you, what's your title? It's-, it's Head of Advocacy. It's Head of Advocacy for Proof and & Company um, and, and Creative Director. I don't like labels. Try to not to use it too much. <laughs> okay. All right, well, tell especially, us, tell in, us- especially in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what the role uh, uh, is, in, is all about because it's quite a cool. unique role, I think. Yeah, so um, head of advocacy. So Proof and Company has our advocacy division. Uh, Proof and Company, if anyone doesn't know, is a independent spirits distributor and drinks company. We're an Asia Pacific company with offices from Beijing to Melbourne, all throughout Southeast Asia um, and North Asia and New Zealand. We represent, you know, some great spirit brand houses like Maison Ferrand and Diplomatico, Never Never Gin. Uh, Widges Gin, of course, and plenty more. And uh, I head up the advocacy part of it. Advocacy for us doesn't really mean brand ambassadors and such things, although we do have some great brand ambassadors. Our uh, definition of advocacy is um, our bar that we have, which is called 28 Hong Kong Street. So I, I uh, manage the, the brand there and the P&L and the GM reports to me for 28. And also our consultancy, which is my main job at Proof & Company. So I head up our our bar consultancy called Proof Creative, which is part of Proof and Company. And I've been doing that you know, full time for almost seven years now. That's why I moved to Singapore. And it started off as a, a small little kind of, uh, you know, like little ad hoc complimentary expert service that we provided to our accounts. You know, people like Zdenek or Michael or Joe would go into bars and help with, help with their cocktail list or their training or whatever it might be as really yeah. snowballed to a point now where we've got this this agency model with six staff members and we've got you know hundreds of projects under our belt now mm. and i mean i want to get to some of those projects in a second but they're like they're a few of the bigger spirits distributors they do have these sort of ambassadors that will help venues with their with their cocktail list and whatever but it's very much uh, as you said before ad hoc it's really interesting to me the way that Proof's done this creative agency in a sense. It just worked. So there was proof of concept before I started in that um, helping uh, operators, sometimes first-time operators, sometimes just a little bit inexperienced, sometimes they just needed a fresh perspective. A lot of the time they're hoteliers that just don't know the bar world like you and I know it. And so they they know accommodation, they know events, they might know restaurants, but they just didn't know how to do a good bar. And um, we, when we started this ad hoc complementary consultancy, which we didn't refer to it as at the time, we realized that they needed a lot more help than just the cocktail list. You know, they, <laughs> okay. they don't, 
And quite often they didn't really need photogenic cocktails and expensive spirits on the back bar. What they actually needed was a holistic approach to kind of get a good outcome from their business and for their brand. And as, as you know, and a lot of the listeners will know, um, what makes a great bar is quite often everything outside of the drink. Yeah. And so it, it was in our best interest to just kind of do their drinks for them and do their cocktails for them because then they would purchase our products. But we thought, no, what? how can we take that even further and add genuine value to their their business and build that relationship as a distributor and as a supplier? We can actually help them make a good bar. So yeah. if, if we went in... If we went into a, a bar, it wouldn't just be helping design their layout or helping with their spirits list or choosing their glassware or doing their cocktail list, which is just stuff we do every day. Yeah. But we kind of go, okay, well, the reason why people are not coming to your bar is because you're not playing the right music or your financial model's out, you're too expensive or your food doesn't match the beverage offering here or mm. recruitment's a big thing these days. So let's get the right kind of head bartender for you. And so that just over time developed into this 20 pillar plan methodology or framework that we use to help mm. bars get better outcomes. Ultimately, Sam, our, our Proof Creative is here to, to um, add value to Proof and Company and build trust and build rapport with our on-premise accounts. I, I guess for me, one of the most striking ones that you guys have been involved with, maybe we can talk through this, is Atlas Bar uh, in Singapore. Uh, that was a few years ago, it was what, 2017, 2018, was it? It'll be five years old in March of 2022. All right. Oh, wow. Five years, hey? Um, yeah. I, I, remember, I remember writing about that. I think we, we did an interview at the time and it was just breathtaking in its scope. And like, it's a, quite a big deal, especially when you go in there and you see the room. It's, you know, there's people in there just taking photos of the place and moving on. You know, it's Instagrammable, just the building. Mm. How does a consult like that sort of unfold? I'm sure there's heaps of moving parts to it. Yeah, it's a good example of our kind of 20 pillar approach. Um, the venue was already there, the kind of the, the, the chassis, so to speak. Mm. This crazy big voluminous building, oh, sorry, venue within this really unique building. Um, and they had a venue there. So they had a food and beverage, they had a business there called Divine Wine Extraordinaire. So it's a good example of just because you've got crazy interior design and maybe great wine list, it doesn't mean it's going to work. Mm. So um, when uh, Vicky and Vincent and the Wong family came to us and gave us the opportunity to first of all pitch for the project, but then also work on it, um, we really went back and said, okay, what's the concept here? And that's really a thing that we talk about a lot with our projects or our, our uh, clients, mm. whether it's an existing venue or a brand new uh, venue like Atlas was, what is the concept here? And then a lot of the creative and critical decisions, commercial decisions can be drawn out of that concept. Like what's your price point? What's the beverage offering? Yeah. You know, what kind of staff do you need? So with Atlas, we um, we started from a point of let's take a fresh approach. We've got this venue, so there is some inspiration here, but let's go through a concept phase. And so we, we, uh, we worked with the family and some other external stakeholders of coming up with a concept. Mm. which is this grand European lobby and bar, obviously. And uh, every little detail and touch point, whether it's tangible or a bit more esoteric, is driven from this idea of a modern iteration of Paris 1925, when the term art decoratifs was coined for the first time. Yeah. So all the decisions there are based upon that, from the gin collection to the music, etc. Yeah, because the building is in this art deco style, but it wasn't built in the 1920s, was it? It's a really no, interesting it story. 
Built in 2002 by uh, Mr. C.S. Wong, property developer, um, Chinese heritage, but um, based in Taiwan and Hong Kong for a very long time. And then his granddaughter, Vicky, took it over, uh, I think 2012 or maybe a bit later. Yeah. And, um, and then she wanted to kind of bring her grandfather's legacy to life a little bit more. Um, and yeah, it's been a wild ride. Um, but it's it's been quite successful and um, the most satisfying thing is not the success of the business, not the, not the, not even the creative outcome, which I'm deeply proud of mm. or not the uh, awards and such things as that. Um, but it's actually the fact that Vicky um, got to put her mark on it and there's a family legacy there and, you know, her kids can run around the venue and it's her grandfather, their great grandfather's building that he built and she yeah. brought this venue to life. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you, it's one of those ones you see the photos, but you got to see it for yourself in there, and it's just the scope of it's insane. You're one of these bartenders who has achieved something that not many bartenders do, and it's to have your your face on a bottle of gin, and it's named after you too. It's Widges Gin. How how did that come about? Mm. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's really cool. It's a really special feeling to see uh, uh, your brand or your product uh, being poured or or being uh, appreciated or being displayed on back bars. Um, it's, it's a really great feeling. How it came about? Well, um, at Proof & Company, we embarked on creating our own spirit brands um, with an, another company, which has since been spun out called True Believers. True Believers stands for, you know, quote unquote, craft spirits and bringing the world of fine spirits to, to the light, to the mainstream. And so, uh, Spencer, one of our co-founders and now chairman, uh, was working on individual spirit brands at the same time, a vodka, a blended malt, a tequila, uh, and a gin. And uh, I've, long, I've long been known as uh, the gin guy. Um, ever since actually back in my Sydney days, Cristiano Beretta and I set up a place called The Rook, which had uh, 80 gins at the time, and we thought that was crazy. <laughs> it was huge at the time. Yeah. It was huge at the time. We actually had to kind of hustle to even pull that many together. This was at the start of the, the gin craze, so to speak. Yeah. Um, we opened we opened Atlas with a thousand. <laughs> so um, and also we'd collaborated on the four pillars spice Negroni gin while I was at Keystone, and and you know my name's still on the bottle there. And then our experience with Atlas, I, I still have a title there, Master of Gin. So we curated the gin collection. We set up the the. Juniper Society there, which is its own brand now and really successful program. Mm. Obviously, the, the huge gin collection and a, a lot of education and programming behind that. So um, I was immersed in the world of gin. Um, I still am for many, many years. Um, I was the first person from Singapore to be inducted into the Gin Guild and wrote articles on gin. I think I wrote something for you and and um, was just the, the gin guy. And so when Spencer was creating a gin for, well, sorry, ideating on, the, on a gin brand for Proof and company, um, he tapped me to work on it. And so we went to work and uh, first question was, why do we? Why does the world need another gin? <laughs> and um, what is our purpose when we're creating a gin? What, how is this going to be used? And so we, mm. I always wanted to do a London dry gin because I think that's most useful in terms of classic cocktails and everyday drinking. And, uh, and then we went, okay, well, what's a different style of London dry gin or what's gonna be our point of difference? Um, so I went to work on the, the the liquid and the concept behind it and how is it going to be used and the benchmarks with it and stuff like that. 
um, which I could talk about all day. But then to your to your point, Spencer then brought me into a room one day to say, I want to run some branding ideas and some naming ideas past you. And I was expecting to see some different options and all that kind of stuff. And then he just kind of unveiled uh, a whole presentation on placards that was all Widges gin. And I was like... That must have been weird. It was weird. It was really weird. I thought it was a joke at first. I thought it was a weird flex because <laughs> you know, he had a, uh, a full-time art director, Pritika, working on it. And they'd, what they'd done is actually done mock-ups of different bits of collateral and merchandise that could be made out of it. So wow. it wasn't just like pictures of me and favicons of my head and bottled, bottle mock-ups and colour palettes wow. and, and brand guidelines. There was like all these random bits of collateral that they'd kind of digitized. So there was like shoes with widgets written on it. And there was like, I think there was shoes. a surfboard and uh, beanies and all these different bits and pieces. So I was looking at it thought, wow, okay. And the way Spencer described it is, you know, um, not only my, was I the gin guy, but people might recognize it in our, our most, one of our most important markets being Australia and Southeast Asia. And then he also thought objectively, it's just a weird word. It's, just, it's, it's a weird word that speaks to some kind of London dry gin English eccentricity. Yeah. And so even if someone is in mainland China or North America or Europe and they have no idea who I am, which most people don't, of course, mm. uh, then they would just take it on its value as being as a quirky word that represents right. London dry gin, but London dry gin with a little quirky point of difference, which is the botanical mix and how it gets used. Uh, right. So that's the inspiration behind it. We never really entertained any other brand names or any other brands. Uh, I obviously had to sign off on it every way through it. And um, yeah, so like, to, yeah, like you said, I can never shave off my mustache unless we do some, um, some limited edition people have joked to me joked <laughs> saying that if we do a uh, non-alcoholic gin, it would be without the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it, it's another kind of honestly life-changing uh, development in my career. And um, I'm very fortunate and feel privileged and uh, honored to be working with the team and, and have, have worked on the team that developed this product uh, and uh, to see it being poured by my friends and people in the industry is really cool. Really cool things. You know, we're the official gin of the Singapore Sling. So we're a piece of the, the Raffles Hotel and Long Bar history now. They yeah. opened in 1880, 1887. And, uh, you know, the Singapore Sling is one of the world's most famous cocktails. And that place is one of the cocktail meccas of the world. Sure. And so now we, we, we have Widges Gin as the house pour there and the Singapore Sling. I've been to, I've been, in a, in a small little cocktail bar in Yangon, Myanmar, and the bartenders come over to me and said, is this you with a bottle of widgets? <laughs> I've been in dive bars in Bangkok and five-star hotels in the Maldives. I've been around all, around the world and people are, are pouring it, which is uh, really cool. Yeah, Sam Ross has got the uh, the uh, penicillin and you've got <laughs> your, your gin everywhere. Very good. The difference is I can trademark Widges gin and unfortunately he can't trademark the penicillin. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where do you think the gin market is at though at the moment? Um, and have we really, have we reached peak gin? I know you, you guys asked, do we need another gin? Yeah, that was a few years ago when we were kind of developing widgets. Um, and I, I don't look at like the IWSR figures really too much. Um, I'm not 
as analytical driven as other people are. So I, I couldn't tell you where it's trending from like a data point of view. Yeah. But my um my gut feel is that um we are probably like um creaking our way to the peak of gin or little peak gin. Uh, but new gins keep coming out every week. Every week. Yeah. The pink gin seems the pink gin craze, the fruit gin, flavor gin craze seems to have plateaued a little bit. Like I said, this is not my opinion's not based on data, but yeah. um, I've just noticed that, um, and as predicted by a lot of people, including myself, that people would kind of graduate from drinking pink gins and fruit gins, and that, and now they're exploring still very modern flavors and gins, but um, they're going back to more classic distilled gins. Mm. So yeah, they're my two two main observations. I think we are kind of creaking our way to peak gin, um, and it seems like the the pink gin craze has really plateaued. Uh, what I love is the native gins or kind of more hyper-locale gins. So gins that have been made in the jungles of Vietnam or gin that's been made in Cambodia or gins that are being made, um, you know, South Pacific and South America and stuff like that. I'm particularly interested in Indian gins. I consulted on a gin brand called Tarai. And I think that's a great example of how you can be creative with gin as a category it can still be a distilled June. It can still have a big um, juniper focus. Mm. It can still stick to like the classic tenets of what a gin is, but then it can incorporate some um, native ingredients to add and enhance what gin is. And it can be an important cultural element to it as well. So for example, um, green ant gin in Australia, the green ant gin actually is a botanical that adds to it. In my opinion, it gives it a nice citrusy quality that really matches with the other classic botanicals and then mm. Tarai from India, for example, there's a, there's a uh, important cultural and historic um, element to that gin. You know, the, there's dozens of gins on the market that have these pseudo Indian references, whether it's old Raj or Indian summer Bombay Sapphire, which are borderline problematic. And if you speak to an Indian distiller, they're like, what the fuck is that? You mm. know? And so, yeah. So um Terai is made by a third-generation distiller, fifth-generation farmer. They, they've got five distilleries, and he wanted to create something that was an international-caliber product, quite contemporary, but really encapsulates the, the beautiful botanicals that come from India uh, yeah. and make a, a beautiful kind of dry gin. Even with proof sort of distribution networks, I would imagine it's still difficult to get a new brand out there in the world because the big players are so, so very dominant, right? Mm. Yeah, in, in Australia more so than other places. Australia's heavily consolidated um, all through the supply chain, I think. So, you know, everyone uses ALM or Paramount, but yeah. then from a brand point of view, everybody's contracted. So everyone's contracted with Diageo, Perno, you know, some of the other some of the other guys. I think less since when I left, it was more so. And I think maybe up until about five years ago, it was kind of peak, but probably dropped off now a little bit because you've got more agile and ambitious independent operators such as housemate hospitality. But in saying that, yeah, Australia compared to Asia is heavily contracted and heavily consolidated, mm. um, which makes it difficult for smaller brands to crack, particularly Australian brands, which are always going to be a little bit more expensive because they don't have the scale. We also have the tax here as well. And the, the prohibitive tax for sure. So, um, yeah, it's super, super challenging, very competitive in the spirits market. It's not stopping anyone from launching their own beverage brands or spirit brands. I think it just needs to have a 
a point of difference, has to have some authenticity, has to taste delicious. Everyone has their own different strategies and how they're going to go to market. It's important to note that Proofing Company started an Asia-Pacific distribution company before we developed our brands. Mm. Whereas most people start put their time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears, lots of money into developing a brand. Maybe they build a distillery. Maybe it's contracted. Spent a lot of money on branding, custom bottles. There's so much different variables. And then they've got to sell it to someone. And then they have to try to take it to market. It's like training for a marathon. You have yeah. to do all the work and then you got to do the marathon. Whereas we uh, we set up this um, infrastructure and supply chains and then we developed our spirit brands and launched it within our existing distribution business. With the demand that's out there in the world, like my read on things is people are generally, as a trend, wanting to look uh, for smaller more authentic supposedly supposedly authentic brands do you think things are going to get easier for smaller smaller players is it going to be some consolidation again because there's a lot of lot of brands out there i don't think there's uh i mean i I remember speaking to angus winchester around this exact topic when i was at the rook so that would have been like 2012 2013 and he was lamenting the fact that there were so many gins coming out and there's going to be a correction in the gin world well, we didn't really know that there was going to be tens of thousands of more gins that were going to be launched after that conversation. Yeah, I think there's an appetite out there. I think with premiumization and people um, drinking local and wanting to support local, I think COVID's probably even going to, you know, pro- propagate that mentality even more with drinkers, particularly in Australia, where you do have amazing products that are being produced and great raw materials and a bit of patriotism, I suppose. So I think there is um, plenty of opportunity for the, the smaller brands um, to be successful commercially. Yeah, so I think there is the opportunity um, for these brands to, to, to make it, quote unquote. For example, at Lana, our restaurant in Sydney, we've got 50 gins on the back bar and we pick a different bottle each day and they do a quick, at lineup, we talk about the gin and then the team pours out. So, and we like to spread the love and, and people really resonate it. And, and we, if we have a, a gin from New South Wales that the customer, or sorry, the guest has never heard of because they're used to drinking Hendrix, Tanqueray, these days probably Four Pillars. And if we present them a gin that's from two hours away that they've never heard of but is really good, they love it. And yeah. they, they will probably reorder that. Uh, they might buy it from Dan Murphy's or something. So there's plenty of opportunity there because the audience in Australia is really open to try new things and they want to drink local, which is cool. Not good for widgets, gin, mind you, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, to answer your question, there's plenty of opportunity for the smaller uh, independent craft brands to uh, to make a go of it. Great. Uh, now, you brought up Lana. Um, this is part of Hinchcliffe House. You're a co-owner in uh, Housemaid Hospitality. I think you guys have plans on taking over the world from what I understand. Tell us how the whole thing sort of came about. Sure. So um, one of my very good friends, uh, Justin Newton, we worked together at Keystone. He, uh, he got in contact one time and said, next time you're in Sydney, let's uh, catch up for dinner. Uh, I'd like you to meet uh, Scott Brown. Um, we had dinner and just went and checked out some sites because they were looking at sites to start something. Scott mm. came from uh, his own hospitality business in New Zealand. He had 18 venues within a group called Hip Group. Um, he exited out of that, moved to Sydney and uh, wanted to um, continue to work in hospitality and, and build another company. Justin is ex-Keystone, ex-Maryvale, ex-QT Hotels, T 
TFE hotels. Um, and long story short, over over a few dinners and heaps of drinks, we decided to form up a new hospitality company. We wanted to start small and just start one bar or restaurant and grow from there. But then this opportunity to to take on Hinchcliffe House developed. Uh, so now we've got four venues. We're about to open up a fifth, a small little cafe next door to Hinchcliffe House. And we formed up Housemaid Hospitality and I'm a director of that company and uh, yeah, work across all the bars and beverage, obviously working with a really talented operations team. And yeah, we're, we're really proud of it. It's challenging times in Sydney at the moment at the start of 2022. And, but we're really excited for the future. We know people are going to come back into the city. People are going to come back and eat and drink in force. Yeah. International borders are open. We're going to get staff. We're really looking forward to the, the, the next year. Uh, how, how how difficult has it been? Because just to touch on that, because you're obviously based in Singapore and you've only just recently been able to get back to the venue to see it for the first time in the flesh a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, it's quite ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> so I spent a couple of years developing the, you know, the concepts and obviously the design, whether it's bar functional layout or equipment list, glassware, OS&E, recruitment. I did it. I did it a little bit of everything and focused obviously in my strengths and did it all remotely, most of it yeah. remotely. And uh, then we opened um, in April, 2021 and I wasn't there for it. And then we phased the different openings of Grana and Lana, then got shut down of course and reopened yeah. and kind of shut down again. So uh, it was difficult to, to do it remotely. I mean, I didn't do it, the, the team then did it. They yeah. opened they opened three venues at the same time. And so I was uh, sitting at my desk in Singapore, guilt-ridden. Uh, <laughs> got off scot-free, mate. Got off scot-free. Uh, but, you know, I've been working working part-time, almost full-time on it for two, three years now. And uh, it was great to see it come to fruition. And then um, in January, I finally got to walk in the venue and work in service and meet the team properly face-to-face and get stuck into it. And uh, How did it feel? Because this is your the first place that you own, right? Really, really special. I've, through the consultancy work and working for other people, I've been in a situation where we've had a vision and then we've worked on the finer details and brought it to life. And so that feeling, Atlas is a great example. I had a vision of this particular martini with a particular glass sitting at the bar, looking up at the tower. And then when I finally got to do that, it was a special moment because that vision came to life. Mm. Uh, but that's doing it for someone else. That's a consultancy client relationship or, or an employee-employee relationship. To do the same thing at Apollonia, for example, where I got to yeah. sit at the bar and drink a Negroni, make a Negroni when I'd worked so much on the interior design, the color palette, the branding, choosing the glassware, getting the ice stamps made, uh, the recipe, working with different collaborators on the ingredients, you know, hiring people like Alyssa, to work on it for basically two years and then sit at the bar of your own venue that you've put your own money in and also blood, sweat and tears was, uh, was really, really special. And, um, I've always, I've always been a little bit hesitant or a little bit coy about opening up my own venue. Like a lot of people mm. in our industry for the first 10 years of your career, you're like, I'm going to open up my own venue. And <laughs> then these days, I think a lot of people say, oh, I want to be a brand ambassador, but it used to be you want to open your own bar. <laughs> yeah. And then and then I worked for other people and I realized how hard it is and all the, the risk involved and the overheads and sometimes the little reward. So I then kind of went, oh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, yeah. But then the opportunity to work with these particular guys and then these concepts, I jumped at the chance, put, put my um, 
put my money where my mouth is and um, it's a really special feeling. So I highly recommend it to, to anyone, but a lot of work went into it. But to your, to your point, Sam, it was a really, really special feeling to actually sit at your own bar and have a drink. Uh, last question. I know you, we got to wrap up in a second, but um, you've had a really kind of varied career. You've done some interesting, different type of roles. Um, how, what advice do you have to anyone who's maybe a young bartender or a young hospital worker? What advice do you have for them to sort of build a varied career like you have? I think, um, I mean, I pride myself on my um, positivity um, adaptability. You know, the, I've worked in very varied workplaces. I've worked in cafes, restaurants, nightclubs, mm. consultancy. I've worked, you know, one of the leading distribution businesses across Asia Pacific. And, and now I work in a different capacity as an, as an owner, but I try to be consistent. So my adaptability, I think, has been good. And that comes through different ways. That can come through just being collaborative. I thrive in a spirit of collaboration. Leave, check ego at the door. Ego can be healthy. But when you're in a collaborate, collaborative work environment, which hospitality is, you're, it's a very team, it's a team sport. And so you're working in pretty intense situations, either creatively or in service or mm. doing shitty jobs. So I think uh, lean into the areas that you're not so good at. I'm, I'm also guilty of not doing this, by the way. My, my business, <laughs> business partners might listen to this and think he's full of shit. But uh, lean into the parts of your role that you might not be that excited about. A bartender needs to know some of the financial metrics behind the bar, not mm. just costing cocktails, but like, you know, how the, the P&L works, um, you know, coffee, non-alcoholic um, day operations. Uh, a lot of bartenders don't lean into that. So I think I've been adaptable and also leaning into certain areas, which I'm not that good at. Well, it sounds like you've been open to opportunity too, right? When it comes knocking. Yeah, yeah. I've taken a few leaps for sure. Um, you know, moving down to Melbourne, not really knowing anyone, moving to Singapore. I remember when I moved to Melbourne, you know, I uh, I had a list. It would have been from Bartender Magazine, but I had a list of 25 bars. And I literally just went door knocking and did the old school dropping off CVs. And I was still in my early 20s. Yeah. So I, I didn't really have that uh, hesitation or apprehension. I didn't have that ego. So I don't have the ego now, but so I, I knew where I wanted to work and I wanted to work with people that I could learn from and work in a spirit of collaboration. And I went out after it, knocked on Durham, Croft Institute, Cookie, Gin Palace, Misty, wherever it might be. And I ended up just working at Ginger where my flatmate was working at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a bit of ambition, but a bit of humility as well. And just adaptability has stead me well. I think it's a good place to leave it. Jason Williams, thank you very much for joining me, my friend. Thank you, Sam. Love your work.